And if we could put it out there in a way that didn't mean that you had to buy it, that you could just rent it, that you're in Byron Bay or Hobart or Bendigo or middle of Melbourne and go, oh, I could drive this really cool EV and it's a really low barrier to entry for EVs and suddenly you've looked at where charge points are and you've charged it just because it's fun. Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Joy and today Lyle and I are shooting the breeze with Dave Budge. Dave is the co-founder of Jaunt Motors, the Melbourne-based startup looking to inspire a generation of car renters. Now, I know what you're thinking. How does one inspire others through renting cars when, at least in our experience, this is usually the least enjoyable aspect of any trip? Well, Jaunt will be offering something pretty special. Dave and his team are building an initial fleet of upcycled old Land Rovers and converting them from traditional combustion engines into electric motors. On top of that, Jaunt will offer unique and authentic anti-Google Maps experiences that showcase the best of regional Australia as recommended by locals. These are also the very locals that will likely be co-owners of the Jaunt vehicle and potentially even have been involved in the EV conversion directly. So cool on so many fronts. We cover all these topics and more. In fact, look out for Dave's perspective on finding purpose in what you do. For us, that is a gem of an insight. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all the relevant links over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Now let's go for a jaunt into the future of car rentals with Dave Butch. Dave, thank you so much for having us here at Energy Lab HQ. We're going to talk to you about Jaunt and we're really excited to do so. But before we jump into that, can we just find out more about you, Dave? Mm-hmm. Are you a born and bred Melbourneite? I would say I'm maybe a bred Melbourneite now. I've lived here for 20 years, but I grew up in a town called Bendigo. It's about an hour and a half north of Melbourne. I moved to Melbourne when I was about 19. Okay, to study here? Uh, no, not exactly. I actually dropped out of school in year 11. I was probably a very annoying kid to my parents in that and my teachers. Um, I enjoyed school. I just didn't enjoy doing homework. Um, like really didn't. And I was probably spent more time coming up with creative excuses as to why I didn't do the homework. And so not, not just the dog ate your homework. No, no, no. We only had cats, so it oh, didn't work. Um, so I was then, but what I was doing was, you know, I was doing well in school, actually in the school when we do assignments there, but I'd come home and I was doing video projects and um, other creative stuff. And it was, you know, the internet had just kind of launched and all these kinds of things came along. And so I was sort of dividing my time and being unsuccessful at both running a small little video production company and and school um and so i made a choice to try and do that and at the time there was not when i was doing a lot of multimedia stuff as well which was really early days there wasn't necessarily a university pathway that was more advanced than what was on the internet because it was 1997. wow um i moved to melbourne um eventually as most people from country australia do move to capital cities and very quickly you know started a production company again production company is a strong word of me doing freelance kind of projects <laughs> that then led into i don't know get you you either reach a limit running your own company whether you're either going to expand uh to do bigger projects 
but it also gets a bit lonely working by yourself. So I was keen to work for uh, another company. And, and the early 2000s were kind of a amazing time for web, you know, digital startup companies, particularly in Melbourne. There was a kind of gap left by other sort of creative advertising agencies around the web. And so I joined a little company that was called uh, Visual Jazz. This is actually where I met my co-founder of Jaunt Martin in about 2007, maybe, on a big project there. And then had worked in, in that company for four or five years, needed a break anyway, and then kind of just started to create uh, for my own self, just, you know, documentary films. And that slowly evolved into starting a production company with some friends. Uh, and that grew pretty big. And we were, um, we had a bunch of employees and we had a big studio. We were making documentary features and TV shows and all different kinds of stuff. And we were doing quite well, but, but I, I found like there was a path that was either, am I going to go down a path of trying really, really hard to be a film and TV director or not? And I realized that I missed interactivity and I missed being able to do the, solve the problem in the best way that I could think of um, when I was only there to solve it in one way, which was video. It's what, what's, the, what's that quote? Like, if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail yeah. or something. Yeah. Like, that's where I felt like a little bit trapped in. And so I had an opportunity to, to go back and work with the company that was once Visual Jazz that I started in years, years before that was now part of a global network, a global advertising network, and they were called Isobar. But a lot of my good friends still work there. The founders still work there. A lot of people, a lot of good friends work there. So it was a pretty cool opportunity to go in knowing that I'd kind of had a five, six year gap from that world, but could come in with and bring experience and maturity and different things, but come back into that. So I you know, worked in, this, in Isobar for five years and I kind of reached a point in my career where the opportunities were to go in a few directions and none of them I was quite inspired by. And I realized it took me a while to, this is sort of some of this I realized only in hindsight, but I wasn't that happy. I wasn't that satisfied. I was kind of like, well, what, why am I doing things for like five years and then getting frustrated at them? And thinking, well, what, what was missing? And oftentimes it was like, well, the, I've liked the people, I've liked the process, I've liked the, 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 the object or the story or the thing that we're creating in the moment, but I've perhaps been unsatisfied with the, the mission and the underlying like point of it all, which is the thing that really is the, you know, that deeper thing that I, I've found that I can, um, I can gloss over and ice beautifully with, you know, like the excitement of new tech or new stories or possibilities. But eventually you get in, you know, down in there and, and realize, you know, am I happy doing this or not? So I was trying to figure that out. Like, what am I going to do like with my life now? What am I going to do for the next 10 years? How do I find a, a job that I'm going to be happy with for 10 years? Because I'd then been, you know, using a lot of post-it notes and diagrams on walls and doing a lot of kind of like strategic and service design kind of related things and, and walking people through a process to uncover problems and get to answers. I'm like, well, I should just do that for myself. And so our spare bedroom at home was filled with all post-it notes around what yeah. kind of things I wanted to do. So when I plotted that out and I was like, okay, well, I can, I'm good at working with emerging tech. I'm good at storytelling. I'm good at, um, I love like going camping and fall driving and exploring Australia and hiking and doing all these things. Um, where does that all come together? <laughs> I was like, how do I get into another field like how do i get into say clean energy or agriculture or something that has a major that is a major issue 
I was like, well, and on one sense, I feel like you know, you you become more senior in a in your career, and you have less practical ability at the same time. <laughs> you're like, oh, I can't really start at the bottom because I won't be a good worker at the bottom <laughs> in this field, and I, you know, I don't have a degree in that thing or whatever it might be. So why don't I just create a company that will employ me? But what should that be? And when I put all those things together, and that okay, Australia has a terrible, terrible uptake of electric vehicles compared to the rest of the world. We have terrible transport emissions. We have terrible, you know, transport options in regional Australia. We have terrible public transport in general, really, but particularly in, in regional areas. You've got a giant country, low population density. Of course, it's going to be the case, but still, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist. And that I could look at myself and go, the only reason that I'm justifying the four-wheel drive that I own is because I use it on the weekends to go camping. And I know that there's other people who have you know, their Subaru Outback or whatever, and I only use it on the weekends. Like I live mm. in a city. So as the as Australia and the world transitions to different forms of ownership and, um, and different ways of transporting and how do we reduce the car's impact on things? How do we change Australian, you know, transport? Could, could I do something within that space? And also realizing that there was a, even if I'm just good at talking about it, that, that's a voice that's missing in, in a lot of, uh, you know, an Australian electric vehicle industry as well. So I kind of mashed all those things together and right in the middle was like, all right, let's try and do something that creates a uniquely Australian electric vehicle in the quickest way, simplest way possible. For good or bad, Australians buy SUVs and four-wheel drives like no other country in the world. So then you look at that and go, well, that's the cars that people are buying and buying a car is a very emotional thing for a lot of people. Now, if you look at all the challenges of EVs in Australia, that you know, there's no sort of federal support, there's no or there's no rebates, there's no nothing, but there's also no cars that people want to buy, right? Mm, yeah, so exactly. we have one of the smallest ranges of EVs to buy of any of any sort of or there's western the country. Teslas and they yeah, super yeah. expensive. So yeah. luxury sedans yeah. or like futuristic hatchbacks with electric blue highlights, those aren't the cars that Australians buy. And so can we make a, you know, what's the electric car that I would want? I would want exactly my four-wheel drive now, but electric. And I, you know, the very, the, the spark of, of Jaunt really came from just wanting to drive around in the bush in silence and not hear a diesel engine anymore. Yeah, amazing. Um, like, that's, that's it. Like, sometimes, you're, you know, you're out in the middle of pristine wilderness and days away from civilization, and, and partly being more and more aware of the kind of almost hypocrisy of, burning hundreds of litres of diesel just to get to pristine <laughs> yes. landscapes. Yes. Something doesn't... Uh, it's not quite right. Quite there, um, yeah. But, yeah, just going, oh, wouldn't this be nicer? Like, as a bushwalker and a, you know, mountain bike rider and stuff, it's really nice when you don't hear, you know, internal combustion engines. Yep. And so I was like, oh, that'd be great. It'd be great to have an electric one of these. Can I just say that if you're on safari... Yes. If you've ever been on safari and you approach a pride of lions or a kill <laughs> mm. with this diesel engine diesel chugging engine in the background yeah. it just destroys right. the tranquility well now it does in my mind yeah before it was like just always the way you, it's you done, just accepted right? it yeah. but really you're but right yeah, uh, you don't so there's a company in um in uh africa now called um in southern africa called electric safari vehicles uh, no kidding and they make electric safari vehicles wow. and we're so gonna they, do that next time yeah yes. and there's a that it started um a few years ago there was a uh reserve in botswana that had uh was the first to do electric four-wheel drives and so now it's it's exploding because not only is it quiet and you can sort of sneak up on things 
there's no vibration. So if you're taking photos, there's no vibration to get into the camera, particularly with long lens yeah. stuff. It's just better for a so hundred million better. reasons. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I was sort of inspired, like there's a little, there's a few little things going on. So the conversions had been big, um, had it's got to a point. So I guess to be succinct about all this, there was a bunch of, or try to be succinct about all this, <laughs> there was a bunch of factors. I personally just wanted to experience that. And that's not a bad way to realize that there is a problem. It's like, I just want that. And some of the best things I've made have been because I just want to use the finished product. So I want, I want that to exist so I can use it. Um, but also that the tech was at a point that made it feasible and understandable enough to me that there was conversions going on around the world. There was companies, um, for example, like EV West in, in California who had really standardized a kit, particularly for Volkswagen conversions. You can just go on their online store and go, I want a VW, whether that's for a Combi or a Beetle, I want a VW conversion kit. And you buy it and it comes in a box and here's the batteries, here's all the cables, and you can literally do it yourself. Wow, um, wow. jeez. So they, the tech had got to a point where it was, you needed some understanding, but it was, it was the complexity of like building a PC or something, um, that it all was designed to work together. It wasn't five years ago or even 10 years ago where people were having to like really create parts themselves and there was no info. Um, and, and batteries had got cheaper. All the pe those pieces of the the engineering pieces of the puzzle had come together, and also EVs time was here. Um, Tesla had made it cool, and and a, and a massive thing was that the charging infrastructure around Australia was there. Now, not that we're necessarily creating vehicles that even need that. And one of the big things is most people who have an EV often don't really use the charging infrastructure because they're charging every night at home. But to be able to point to that and go look at the plug share app and look at the hundreds and thousands of, of charge points around Australia right now um, that exist. So all those these pieces had come into play and going, okay, well, I know that I can make a cool product, um, make it, find the team to make it an EV that because the tech's there, I can kind of price it um, and and do something with it and hopefully solve a transport problem at the same time. And so that's just turning over in my head. And uh, Martin, who I mentioned earlier, who I'd worked, started working with in like 2007 on a big web project, and she's a producer and project manager. So uh, we get along really well, but we're both very excitable, and, but we have very different brains. I'm a sort of designer, creative director, and she's a producer. And so we clash, but only on the journey to the same you know yep. to the same goal and we were chatting over lunch and she was like i'm actually not very happy here looking for something else to do do you want to start an agency and i was like oh, that's a really good idea and there's definitely a market for it but how about we do this other thing that, <laughs> that you and i have thing? nothing no idea about um, but i know that we can figure out so i got martine excited about this um, but it fitted her too she grew up in um she grew up in sort of remote Queensland in Mount Isa, uh, grew up driving four-wheel drives, you know, lived in Melbourne for most of her adult life, and uh, but but still, you know, got it and loved that kind of adventure and, um, and things. And so we then together started figuring this thing out. How could it be a business? How could we... How could we actually structure it as a profitable thing? Where does it fit? How do, what are our goals? What are the values of this thing? What's the mission of this thing? All coming back to this, how do we make this something that we want to do for 10 years at least? 
Um, how do we really have the impact that we want to have, which is basically how do we get Australians excited about driving EVs? That's all we want to do. How do we solve transport in the bush? How do we make an awesome vehicle to drive? And how do we get Australians exposed to EVs in the first place? And that is about, and that really, we felt, brought together a lot of our strengths of going, let's make something that's approachable, it's accessible, that you're excited by. We can bring, if we have any experience in anything, it's in brand and design and storytelling. And that's what we felt that it needed. And particularly like customer experience side of design, that we felt that that was part of what the EV industry in Australia needed. Getting people to change behavior is the hardest thing of all. Mm. So how do you do that? You have to create something that isn't just as good, it's better than what they're coming from mm. and makes them more excited and have more desire built into it to get anyone to change something. So can we go, right, the text there, we don't need to worry about that. I mean, we, it's a big component of what we're doing, but we don't need to figure out new things. What we've got to figure out is knowing that, okay, we've got the shape of an old Land Rover, which is the most quintessential children's drawing shape of a four-wheel drive you could ever get, but is kind of in this you know, collective memory and nostalgia that we all have around the Australian bush or safari or whatever it might be. Bush Tucker Man drove one. Like they, they literally are the cars that were on every farm in the 60s and you know, yeah. did make half the roads through the desert. So that shape is there and it's super iconic. And this is a, a vehicle where there's thousands of them out there, but it's rising in popularity. And the only thing stopping it is that people go and test drive them and realize that it's a 1960s full drive it's got three gear sticks, it's got a choke, it's loud and noisy and it stinks and it's all these things. Of course, that's a barrier for people driving it. But if we could take that away, take that mechanical complexity away, and if we could also make the EV side of it really, really simple and approachable and not have to put all this EV stuff in people's face and just press the start button and push the accelerator and drive, then surely that's, that's what people would like. And if we could put it out there in a way that didn't mean that you had to buy it, that you could just rent it, that you're in Byron Bay or Hobart or Bendigo or middle of Melbourne and go, oh, I could drive this really cool EV that I think is cool, maybe not everyone does, but this, this I could drive this thing and spend a couple hundred dollars and rent it for a day and it's a really low barrier to entry for EVs and suddenly you've looked at where charge points are and you've charged it just because it's fun. Uh, it's fun to pull up at the best parking spot in the shopping center or the free parking spot, you know, in, you know, whatever council and plug in just cause it looks quirky to plug in. <laughs> Very uh, Instagrammable yeah, as right? well. <laughs> and it's totally Instagrammable and that can't be like, you know, people are paying more and more for experiences. Like who wants, no one wants to, you know, you're living in the inner city, you don't necessarily want to own a big old four-wheel drive whether it's electric or not but you want to have that experience. What we would we would sort of almost somewhat tongue-in-cheek describe it as we're trying to build a single-use car. Yeah. Um, and it's because, but it's because multiple people use it, but maybe only once, maybe you only ever drive a jaunt once. So Dave, just to, to maybe summarize, and just so for anyone who's listening who might be really, or want to get really clear on exactly what the offer is here. We're yeah. talking about... <laughs> Sorry, I've gone into a lot of detail. <laughs> We're talking about uh, a beautiful old Land Rover, a fleet, ultimately, of beautiful old Land Rovers that have that nostalgic, you know, really nice yeah. getting out into the bush and on adventures mm -hmm. feeling. 
with complete silence because you're driving an electric vehicle. So you've got these these two things going, or there's, there's actually more than two things. There's, there's the nostalgia, there's the electric mm -hmm. vehicles, you're doing something better for the planet, and there's also the sharing economy. So you're mm -hmm. touching on a whole range of mm -hmm. different things. But on top of that, it's ultimately going to be a car rental company and you're going to offer experiences on top. Mm -hmm. So I think there's two things that we haven't covered yet. One of, one of which is tell us about the the whole experience side of it and how mm. you know what's that going to involve and secondly the the concept of the community build yep. and what that's going to involve because those two concepts are also quite unique as far as yeah, I understand. Yeah. So I guess you know at, at its core we want to take old Land Rovers, cool four-wheel drive, we want to put electric motors in them and let you, you know have people drive around Australia in them. Not around all of Australia just yet <laughs> but, but in different places in Australia. Soon and, enough. Yeah and so our first step to that is obviously to manufacture the cars and we're building a few for private sale and we're building but ultimately what we want to do to make them as accessible as possible is have them available for rental to do that the the real goal of jaunt underneath it all what are we who are we as a company as a brand we're trying to create a sense of belonging within travel you're going for the local the local food and the local wines and the to experience this culture and this thing and often the piece that's missing is transport because if you're driving in a Corolla with a Hertz or a neighbor <laughs> sticker that does not fit into that environment at all you want to feel as local as possible and that, that's a huge movement in, in tourism is you know more sustainable more local more unique experiences authentic, authentic yeah. experiences right yeah. and and that's I mean at its simplest that's just asking someone who lives there or who travels there all the time, oh, what should I do when I'm there? And what should I not do? Yeah, and what should I not do? Because TripAdvisor will tell you all this stuff yeah. and that's fine, but it's very different to being, you should swim at this waterfall, you don't go here. It used to be cool, but now it's just a bit touristy, but go here and, you know. So how do we bring all that stuff and how do we then create a transport option that fits that kind of, that desire for travel? And if we can take a car that is from that place, that we're not trying to, like I said before, we're not trying to build cars for car enthusiasts. You don't necessarily need to know it's called a Land Rover, call it a Jeep, call it a Land Cruiser. It's just this quintessential four-wheel drive in your imagination. But ideally, it's come from the farm just over the hill <laughs> and it had a history in that place. And the car itself has a history, not because of a make and model and it was built in this year by this guy, but because it lived here and it did these things and it's it been local. to all it's local and it's been to all those places that you're going to so combining that that makes you you know maybe you get a wave because it's that it's the rental car of that town that it feels right that we're also curating experiences within that that tell you to you know go to this place and whether that's a paper map or it's integrated into a you know a GPS it's more about saying Google will always, Google Maps will always tell you this is the fastest way and here's the second fastest way. It's two minutes slower, but it never tells you the nicest way. And that's a very, very different concept that is very hard to, no mapping experience does that. What, but people, it's something that people talk about. You're either asking like, how long did it take you to get here? Or which way did you, you know, which way did you drive here? And people might say, oh, I came this way because I wanted to go around the coast because it's nicer. Um, and that's something that that's a human element that that tech isn't quite there yet and maybe one day it will be but for right now we can we can say yeah tr this is the itinerary that you should take that this is the best experience in this place and it's a curated thing when we have all the knowledge in all the world available in our pockets curation is the valuable thing mm. so to enable that 
we, on one hand, you know, we didn't necessarily want to be a, we were at a, a conference called Ethical Enterprise and they were talking a lot about how do you create a, a business that has societal benefit built into its model, not just a, oh, we give 5% of profits to land care or something like that, which is a good thing, but isn't necessarily in, integral to the operation of the business. How do we either make, you know, our company, like our employees, society around it or our customers, or how do we create a component of the business that directly benefits from, from its operation? And if you think about what we, how we could scale, we could build a big factory and we could be producing a lot of these vehicles and we could plonk them down, you know, with big venture capital money, and we could plonk them down around Australia and rent them out. And that would be cool. People would you'd still achieve some of the, the mission of the, of the company. But what would be much, much nicer is if there was a true sense of ownership. I mean, we're, we're kind of trading off the beauty of, regional Australia, the beauty of the land and whether that's a farming community or an indigenous community or a national park, how are we not just, you know, we're, we're trying to create a car that lets you experience that better. Well, we're technically, you know, just taking advantage of that. How do we integrate that and, and really give back and make that beneficial to the community as a whole? And so what we're really trying to do is go, we need to build an efficient process and build an EV conversion kit for ourselves to help make our process efficient. But if we're doing that, why can't we distribute the manufacturing around the country? Awesome. Because the skills to work on an old Land Rover exist in every single town in the country. Even electric vehicle stuff, it's, you know, it's an electrician's work. It's high voltage electrics. That's everywhere as well. So we need a certain level of, you know, process and quality and we need to quality assure things and engineer things. But there's no reason why we can't be working with communities to take a vehicle that exists there restore it locally, provide them with a, with a kit and partner with them to co-own that vehicle and, and operate it. And whether that's living at a, a, you know, a winery or it's run by a council or whatever it might be, that we can create something that, that truly has a connection and is supported by community. Because that's a, there's a huge problem of how do you run a car share or car rental business, you know, distributed across the country, how do you service and support it and make sure it's clean and charged and plugged in. Well, part of the way to do that is to get people to actually care about it. Um, and how do you get them to care about it? Well, you get them to truly co-own it um, and be able to have it feel like it's something that, that belongs. Um, and within that, if we're putting electric vehicles around the country, well, we're also encouraging you know, an installation of charging infrastructure and, and getting those people in community to do that. And so one of the things that we kind of put, you know, Deep, in, deep inside the vaults of jaunt to say, what is a measure of success one day? Um, that may never happen, but beyond, yeah, we're producing cool cars and a few people might buy them and we're producing cars that people are, tourists are renting and stuff. Imagine if one day, we're not gonna change car ownership in Australia. Um, that's a long, long time and, and we're not gonna, you know, autonomous vehicles aren't gonna be able to drive down every dirt road in Australia for a long, long time. But if we could possibly change someone's mind who's thinking about buying, say, a second car, and instead of buying an SUV or a four-wheel drive ute or whatever because of that sometimes moment, that, oh, that once a year when we need to do this, if they were to, say, buy a more efficient car or a new electric car or whatever that might be, 
because they knew jaunts existed, that would be amazing. That would be awesome. Yeah. And I love that idea of it's coming back to the, the concept of distributed ownership mm. as well instead of centralized ownership, which I mm. think is such a cool idea. It's, it's involving, as you say, the community and locals and, and things more yeah. in the future, more in, in um, yeah. change more, which, yeah. you know, in the past we've moved to this, everything's in the cities, everything's in the center. And the you know distributed communities don't get access to it. Yeah, so. and I think I mean we, we we get emails from people around the country who see a practical application for this now. So Australia, Victoria, and New South Wales in particular have a pretty good train network for the population. Um, they went crazy in the you know late eighteen hundreds, and it's great, except that it very much reaches a dead end. And so <laughs> one, I mean, I know this from growing up in Bendigo and, and Bendigo has a huge art scene and people take the train all the time to go to Bendigo to the art galleries. There's a bunch that are very central and then there's a lot more to do, but they're further out and there's literally nowhere to get to them. Um, but it's the same in say the Blue Mountains. You go to Katoomba station, it's a cool train ride through the Blue Mountains. And, and then what? They, yeah, <laughs> and then what? And this is a real problem that people are having now. People come to the station expecting to see the Blue Mountains. They get out at Katoomba, and it's too far to walk anywhere. Like, there. yeah, you're in the mountains, <laughs> but you're not at any of the famous points. There is literally no cars to rent. There's buses, but they're only about local transport to different centres. And so, th and that's the story of a lot of regional Australia. That mm. we, if we're putting, you know, vehicles in these places we can actually make a little bit of a difference in, in transport. Totally, yeah. Having watched your YouTube videos working on Juniper and, and the other couple of uh, cars you have in your emerging fleet, mm. there is a heck of a lot of work that goes into modification. And I know you've mentioned mm. the kit, kit cars and, mm. and that makes it a much more streamlined process. But without getting too technical, could you give us an idea, Dave, of how that happens what sort of work is involved yeah uh so initially when we were first going to do it you know the part of it is just you know when you're creating a new product you just want to prove it what's the what's the mvp what's the minimum viable product that you can create and for us at first you're like well let's just get a car that's you know registered and legal and throw the ev bits in it and the challenge is that a lot of these cars are barely holding on to their roadworthiness and legality in that they kind of are if you keep them registered and you get a kind of sympathetic mechanic. But when you convert it to an EV, it has to be engineered uh, by what's called like a VAS engineer. So there's a select group of people, like there's like 20 in Victoria that can engineer and certify a major conversion like right. put, swapping a motor. Once you do that, you're not skimping on anything. You're not hiding anything. They need to see the whole build process. That also allowed us the ability to think, well, you know, what part of what we're trying to do is figure out the costs and the processes to do this at scale. We need as much data as we possibly can. So what that meant we had to do was we get the car back in and we're like, right, well, now we need to just take everything apart, every nut and bolt out. And old Land Rover in particular, every part of the car is unboltable from every other part. So every piece is, you can lift it up by one person. It's not like it's all connected into some giant confusing thing that can only be moved by a robot. So it allowed us to pull everything apart um, and check it all. And then while we're at it, when we're not obviously creating this pure Land Rover anymore, it's converted to electric, what else, 
how do we build efficiencies and how do we build economies of scale and how do we build a better vehicle both for the customer and for us to construct. So the first car, Juniper, has been a lot of work to try and understand all this stuff and where we can improve it and also to figure out the best way of improving it at the same time. And then every car, subsequent car, has been half the time again and half the time and half the time until we get to a point that's uh, that's kind of standardised. And then you can, as you said, roll this out to communities, have that blueprint, and Mm. it'll be so much more efficient to retrofit modify yeah 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 and so and and when we say that i mean we don't mean just you know any mechanic anywhere and although there's so many people with the skills we there's still elements of what we're doing that is combining the best of old school tech and advanced manufacturing so it may be that we're sending out a kit but you have to 3d print a part or something else that that basically puts a um not a barrier to entry but it but it sort of sets you need this sort of facilities to be able to do that we want to work with people who have more importantly, like great process and, and are able to turn this around. And that includes, um, you know, training environments too. So we're talking with, uh, Victoria has a network of tech schools, which are kind of like run in parallel to high school almost, but they have advanced manufacturing facilities in them, um, TAFEs, all these kinds of things that we can work with as a way to sort of train people on electric vehicles as well. So having a certain level of, of, of competency and process so that we can still do this efficiently, but also then have a kit that we can ship out to anyone who wants to convert their own old Land Rover. Um, now, they, and if they want to spend two years doing that, that's cool. Um, it's like they can just do that because once we've we've established this and you know got all the parts you know sort of organised, we want to make that easy for people to do. That's great. There's a drug creation element there as well, which is pretty cool. I'd, I'd like to hope so. Yeah. Once we're all driving electric cars, there is still they're going to be need to be worked on independently as well. So, how can we help? in our own little way, um, get people excited about doing this. Nice blend between the old and the new. Mm. Mm. Can you take Juniper on a creek crossing? Yes. Yes. That's exciting. (laughs) So (laughs) that is a big thing. It's a big thing for me. I love, I have a snorkel on my diesel four-wheel drive right now, and I've, uh, I want to say needed to go through deep water. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes you just want to because it's fun, but I've literally uh, in the past had to... um, escape floods and different things and there's times when full drives totally make sense in Australia and are absolutely required. So and I'm definitely like roads on the map that take you through water at varying depths. Um, <laughs> Google doesn't have that either. Yeah, no, right? And so uh, we are making sure that, um, I mean, there's a really funny stat that I think 42%, and this is maybe two years old now, but 42% of people in in the UK think that you can't take a electric car through a car wash. So obviously, this is something that people who make electric cars have kind of thought about, um, and electric car components. So one of the things is making sure that um, you know our battery boxes, for example, that we are able to put under the, the the frame of the car and keep very low down, just like you know a Tesla or any other modern electric vehicle does. We can keep these batteries very low. But when you put them low, there also means they're susceptible to not just water, but to, to rocks and you know off-road stuff. So they're, we're building them very, very strong to take an impact and be able to take the weight of the car, but also sealing them and making them as watertight as possible. Just looking at this from uh, an environmental perspective, mm-hmm. EV vehicles are fantastic because obviously they, there are no carbon emissions uh, as compared to a combust- combustion engine. But there is some speculation, and I don't know how true or not, 
It is around the impact of extracting the resources necessary to make the EV vehicle, and in particular, the, I think it's the battery that is the problem. Do you have any info or, or stats around whether, in fact, an EV is more environmentally beneficial over its life than a combustion engine? I'm, I'm sometimes terrible at remembering some of the, the core facts around this, but I guess there's a, there's a couple of questions in there. And one is that, I mean, you started out by saying an EV is, has less carbon emissions. And, and one of the arguments that people will come back with is like, oh, yeah, sure, if we were all getting our power from renewable sources. So you could say, well, if we've got a jaunt in Tasmania, everything's coming from hydropower, right? Um, but, and you know, when you know, okay, well, uh, well, if it's in Victoria, is most of our power is coming from coal-fired power plants. For a lot of people who own an EV now in Australia, they sold, had solar panels before they bought their EV, so they're charging off the sun maybe. But they can, you can also opt for obviously, you know, clean energy through your power provider. Um, now, all electricity is all mashed together. It's not necessarily that you're getting that, but you, you're at least in, in supporting that. Most of the EV charge uh, charge ports, public charge ports around the country, you know, are connected and are using renewable energy. Um, you know, that's obviously they know that their customers will are thinking about that sort of stuff. Um, so whether it's just a commercial decision, but it obviously makes sense for a million other reasons that those charge points would be purchasing renewable energy to, to charge vehicles. So most of the time your EV is powered by renewable energy, either directly from a renewable power source or you're purchasing it in a broader sense. But even then, even if you were to like be, you know, you've just got your normal power in Victoria, you're getting your power from coal power plants, it's still less carbon emissions. Um, and when you think particularly that uh, and obviously, if you're comparing it to, you know, an old Land Rover, like dramatically, yes, but even to a modern, efficient petrol or diesel engine, an electric motor is such an efficient power source because, and particularly in a vehicle, partly because because it has so much torque all through its its rev range. Like in a normal car, you've got to put your foot down and get to two, three, whatever thousand RPMs before you feel the car really do something. An electric motor, that torque, that that power is there from the very from nothing and what that means is that it's it's super super efficient and to to the extent that if we were to put a diesel generator a modern diesel generator in the back of one of these land rovers and purely charge it from that diesel generator that would be more efficient and produce less emissions than it would be if we put a diesel engine in the car because a bat because a battery electric system is such an efficient propulsion method so submarines, ships, that's what they use. They have their diesel, yeah, but the diesel only charges the batteries that runs the electric motor that actually runs the ship. Then the other question is, is what about the construction of the vehicles? And so this, this total holistic life cycle of, of carbon and, and resources that it's going into it. And you know, we, we would like to think that we're doing the best that we can by starting with as many recycled elements as we can. Obviously, the car itself, the aluminium, the steel, there's about, um, about 500,000 vehicles, what they'd call end of life in Australia every year, basically crushed and scrapped. Uh, and that generates about 100,000 tonnes of waste. 
um, most of that being the plastics and things. So steel and aluminium is predominantly recycled when you you know get rid of a car in Australia, but the, there's plastics and all mm. other kind of crap. So 100,000 tonnes of waste, it's still a lot. So we're recycling as much as we can. So obviously that's better than producing a new car from new steel. I mean, even if you said, well, you can recycle the old steel, well, that's not, you know, free. And that's not, you know, I mean, from a cost point of view and an energy sense point of view, we are literally just using the old car. We're also uh, in some of our vehicles using Tesla batteries, so from wrecked Teslas and literally using those battery modules, um, so recycling those as well. But even if you go back to the source and go, well, what is the what is the effort and the 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 energy and the, and the raw materials going into it? An electric motor, for example, is much much smaller than a petrol motor. So there's a lot less aluminium, steel, and aluminium is, you can't discount the fact that aluminium is one of the most energy hungry things to produce. The reason it's a modern metal is because we just didn't have the electricity to, to run the process to extract the aluminium before. So less in the motor is one thing. And then you get to the batteries, which do have a lot of horrible stuff in them. Uh, horrible in that, you know, sometimes there's poison in the middle, but the way that they can be produced can, can be like, many elements in the modern world from from very ethical minds to very unethical minds and very bad practices mm -hmm. and polluting practices so there's lithium is a huge huge thing cobalt is a huge thing depending on the battery chemistry so there's about five major types of lithium batteries um, that you use and and that vary based on their weight or their density basically the amount of power they have in the in compared to weight and size and things like in your, and stability. So things like the batteries in our phones and electronics are a bit more volatile and a bit more susceptible to, you know, catching fire or whatever and, and exploding, but they have a lot more density packed into them. Stuff that we use in vehicles is, is a little, is a lot more stable, um, but then is a lot heavier for the same power. The technology, the, the chemistry in each of those is different. And so depending on the chemistry is, is where some of these materials like cobalt for example which is kind of rare and hard to get is can be can be used or not used but lithium is one thing that people will point to all the time australia is one of the biggest um places to get you know australia africa chile are major sources of lithium mining and some of the places that are mining lithium are pretty horrible um the the thing is though that if you can the amount of materials going into any modern vehicle is so ridiculous mm. from all the plastics to all the things that it's very hard to argue. It's very easy to look at one element of that and say that this is a terrible thing, but you need to look at all the elements that are going into a car. And there's no doubt that some, you know, that lithium is a rare material we're using it up faster than ever. It's expensive from a carbon point of view to, to get at. But we're getting much, much better at that. And then there's also the ability to recycle batteries now and not just reuse them in a way, but actually refresh them and reuse them. The chemicals that have created the reaction are still there. And you can actually, there's a, there's a great startup in Australia, um, just in Victoria, actually, that's able to get batteries back to 80% of their original capacity through some, through some tech that they've developed. So it's not, you know, it would be better if we all just rode bikes everywhere, right, and used, you know, public transport. But it's still a more, you know, effective and, and efficient technology than it is if you were to purely equate 
a, a new electric vehicle with a new petrol vehicle. For us, if we can be recycling as much as we can, we would definitely a much reduced carbon footprint for what feels and in many ways is a new car. You know, it's a brand new, it's got a new paint job, it comes with a warranty, all of these kinds of things um, has much, much less, you know, environmental impact than any new car that you buy. I suppose moving into the future, we need more and more investment into these types of things mm. so that we can do better at replacing yeah. things like lithium, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and without and just making the argument that we can't go forward because lithium's involved would defeat the purpose and we'd be stuck in the past mm. with a pretty bad situation. Absol- so. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, one of the arguments for um, for hydrogen um, electric vehicles is is that you know the hydrogen can be there's an infinite source of hydrogen essentially, but one of the challenges with um, with hydrogen is that, and, and fuel cells, is that you need to, someone needs to refine it, someone needs to create that hydrogen. And that is not a, a cheap thing to do, it's not an easy thing to do. And it's also, I guess from a sort of democratization of, of, of tech and power, pure battery electric vehicles allow anyone to put up a solar panel, plug in their car and be completely independent. Hydrogen still requires a refinery, distribution network, a service station, all of these things that control, continue to control the supply chain and keep the power within, you know, energy companies. So the ability to completely have a distributed network of, of, of not even a network, just distributed power. And so whether you're a, you know, a small island somewhere and you have great a great hydro system that's, that's running, you can just power it from that. Um, and continually, you know, the whole world is desperate for batteries to get better. Mm. And there's amazing developments that are making batteries so much so much more dense for the same amount, volume of, of raw materials that it's only going to get, you know, more and more efficient. Yeah. So when we first heard about Jaunt, we were really excited to actually rent yes. Juniper Great. or whoever and go out and do it. What is the roadmap from here and when can we actually do that? Mm-hmm. Um, we are about two months away from having legal road legal uh, first two road legal vehicles. Awesome! Just um, the time for summer. Yes, and so we'll be uh, going on a bit of a road trip up the east coast. To we we ran a very early on we ran a crowdfunding campaign um, just to see if people wanted to actually do it and put money down and rent one. And so those people are very much our user testers and our nice. first test drivers and. Um, we'll be getting the first, be the first ones to trial it. So we'll obviously be doing a bunch of testing in Victoria, but then going up the east coast and, and doing some rentals. So yeah, summertime there'll be we'll be announcing availability um, in different places around Victoria. We want to go and sort of be down the coast for a week, or be in Dalesford for a week, or whatever it might be, um, and have people try it. Right? We want feedback. We want you to say you hate stuff or like stuff or. Um, and there's because there's elements where we're playing with that feeling of nostalgia versus feeling of e- drivability and ease. Where does that sit? What do people feel like? So this summer is really about the testing of the prototypes, and then from next year uh, it'll be you know a larger Opening manufacturing. That. What what is exciting is that will our first permanent. Uh, location will be over near Jarvis Bay, oh, nice. uh, a place called Mountain Ridge Wines. Um, so they've been a really big supporter of us, and um, we've been working with them. And they're on 
developing the first sort of pilot experiences. So this will live at their their property um, from sort of December and you'll be able to go there and whether you catch a train down from Sydney down to Berry Station or something, but drive around Jarvis Bay and that coast and that, um, you know, there's some beautiful mountains and they're going to work out some itineraries. And Let's so do that. Figure out the, the That things. sounds great. So oh. overnight, they're going to maybe the first journey we're thinking you'd go down to Jarvis Bay and you go for a swim and then you'd stay in the kind of, there's kind of a like a glamping stay in kind of teepees place that you'd stay in. So like a whole kind of package and you take like a basket full of food and all this kind of stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll try that. We'll try yeah, try that. I think we try could be convinced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting about the crowdfunding. Is that was that your sort of major funding process? Is that how you've really tackled it? Um, I think every crowdfunding starts with, oh, that we're going to be the next, you know, giant success. Um, but realistically, no, we we crowdfunded because we knew that. I guess we had we had a we could look at the process for this year and say we want to build prototype vehicles and uh, we want people to test them and we want feedback before we go into larger manufacturing. But we also knew that we had a product that people were very, very excited to try and would want to want to be involved in. And, and traditionally, you might be designing a new product, uh, whether it's a physical or digital thing, and maybe it's new bank software or something. You kind of pay people a little bit to, you know, it's a, with a token, a bottle of wine or a gift card or something, to come and be user testers. Mm. We're like, okay, we're a startup. We have no money. Let's <laughs> figure out, maybe people will pay to be our test drivers. Um, and genuinely provide feedback to us uh, and be, you know, be the first people to, to have a go of this. So we also thought that you know, the best way to get people aware of this was, was crowdfunding is great because if we just turned on bookings for a future car, who cares? Like, oh, we turned on a thing on our website, like whatever. But a crowdfunding has a little bit of urgency to it and a little bit more story to it, and we knew that we could shout about that and that people would be interested in you know we'd get articles and things which we did so that was a choice to go let's see if people will pay for it but also let's use this as a, an ability to make a bit more noise and get people a bit more excited um and probably led to you guys finding out about yeah. it forced us to create the collateral to create the marketing to buy a car in queensland rather than down the road to take photos and do all this this effort to create this brand which we knew was a critical thing for us because where we were really going to add value is if we could make a car rental network that was cool, like that's an achievement in itself. Totally. So we ran that crowdfunding campaign. We sold about 100 days of bookings. Amazing. Um, so that was about 20 grand uh, in, in the 20 days. And through that, we've also you know had sold private cars, which that has helped sort of bootstrap production and things as well. Um, we've also had a few little smaller grants. We've also, and then... Um, also had some private investment. Now, to start closing off, mm. we would like a few pieces of your advice. The first one is, if anybody out there wants to go ahead and convert an electric vehicle or wants to understand more about conversions, mm -hmm. uh, where do they go? What is like the first port of call for resources on this topic? Mm. That's a really good question. YouTube. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of an answer that isn't YouTube. Yeah. Um, that's where a lot of great stuff is. There's, there is some, you know, the Electric Vehicle Association here in Australia has a forum. There's a few other forums, but they're probably not a good starting point because they get very technical very, very quickly. Uh, a lot of the people obviously doing this have backgrounds in electrical engineering and things like that. But yeah, YouTube, there's a couple of great series. There's a, there's a really nice one by um, a French couple who built a 
you know, electric, um, one of the 80s kind of combi vans. Cool. Um, it's really good. It's in French, but obviously it's subtitled and is and and great. Um, but there's there's plenty out there. And then a, particularly a company called EV West uh, from the States, they are a huge sort of global reseller of, of things, but they are also, you'll find through them a lot of connections to other, other builds and, and other projects. Awesome. Sounds like there's a ton also, out there, lots like, of support. Go along to a... Uh, you know, electric. There's the Australian Electric Vehicle Association was founded in like 1977 or something like that. It's been going for a long time. That's how long there's been electric vehicles around for. So it's crazy that it's taken this long. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, and so those, but those those guys have um, those guys have meetups. You can go along and touch see you know <laughs> homemade electric conversions. Um, every every town. Every you know, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. There's always there's an EV expo and different things like that every year, which you can often go and see conversions as well as modern vehicles. So it's still, it's still in a fun place where it's this kind of mix of like big business coming in, but it's also more hobbyist stuff. Yeah. Nice. So you can come in and just yeah, here's the one guy in the world who's converted this kind of car, and just go and say hi and talk to him about it, and they'll people want to explain this stuff, right? So that's fun. Yeah. Okay, and here's the doozy question. Mm. If you could have one message or piece of advice or thought truly heard by every human on the planet, what would it be? (laughs) Okay, yeah, that is really hard. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we usually ask this within an environmental context. Yes. um, And given that Jaunt is in that realm, that's sort of the, the direction that we usually go in, if that helps narrow it down a bit for you. I don't think, you know, I've I've lived a life very much on without set goals or plans in a lot of ways um, and just grabbed onto opportunities and and tried to work hard to to do those things and so you know sometimes you read books and you like you know people and it's like this is my five mantras around these aspects of my life and this is what I do and you're like okay that's amazingly organized and I you know that's all good advice but I don't I don't have any of that um but I would perhaps, for me personally, I guess that perhaps what I've done is make sure that I continually, and particularly in an environmental context, just question everything, like question my behaviours all the time. And is that the way that it could be done or should be done? And can you, by your own small behaviour, um, be an example of, of a different way to do things. I love that. I think we are, many of us are sort of blindly following a path without really mm. thinking whether, and, and that's, that applies to everything, mm. right? It's not just the environmental yeah. aspect, but it's just like, are you truly doing what makes you happy? Are you truly doing what's, you know, what's right for you and your family and the planet? And yeah. So, yeah. I think and it doesn't mean to be that I'm, that you're going to do everything. Like I'm sitting here drinking out of a takeaway coffee cup when I had a reusable coffee cup upstairs, but I just didn't go upstairs first to get it. Yeah. And so behavior change is really hard it's and really it's easy hard. to be really lazy all the time. But I think that it's often really inspiring when you see someone who does make that tiniest little effort mm. to do something a bit different. I mean, and then you see, I think in, a, in an Australian context, we are... There's a, there's a model called the Hofstede Cultural Model that looks at different societies and different things. There's five values that it compares different societies. Australia Index is really low on what's called, um, oh, sorry, really high on uncertainty avoidance. Do not like change. <laughs> but 
what you, but high individualism and all these other things that almost seem paradoxical. But you see it happen when we can actually be, we want to be individuals, but we also kind of follow, there's a big group dynamic as well with the, with because group, we don't want yeah. that uncertainty avoidance. But when everyone does something and we're like, okay, I'll do it too. And you see that with whether it's adoption of tech or it's something like getting rid of plastic bags in supermarkets. We can't possibly, it's going to be so hard. Suddenly it's just gone. It's just gone away. Yeah, everyone's doing it. And so in an Australian context, it's very, very slowly and then very, very quickly, Mm. um, which is, you know, the adoption curve of a lot of of new tech. But that can often be triggered by just a few people changing and going, no, it's fine, I'll just do it. Just questioning it. If that guy does it, I can probably do it too. So being that, like, you being that leader in a very tiny way in some just one behaviour, I think, can have this snowball effect. And, and in a country like Australia, that snowball can get huge. Pretty big, yeah. Pretty quickly. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And now finally, where can people follow along? How can they make sure that they're staying on top of the jaunt journey? The jaunt journey. The jaunt journey. The jaunt, jaunt. Um, <laughs> the... So if you just sort, search Jaunt, we should be the number one Google result, but Jaunt Motors um, as one word is our social handle for everything. Um, we try and we just post everywhere because we're not you know, trying to build a huge YouTube channel or anything. Um, so you can see videos of our construction on YouTube. You can see photos and vi- those videos on Instagram, uh, stuff on LinkedIn too. One of the um, I would like to think funnest things you can do. Funnest might be the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> most fun things is our newsletter is uh, tr- we try and be quite transparent and it's not really, it's not like marketing news. It's like a bit more of an insight into us as a startup and our process and decision makings um, and a bit more of a behind the scenes thing. So you can cool. sign up to that on our website. Um, we also post that as like a blog thing on LinkedIn. Dave, thank you so much for this conversation. We are thoroughly enlightened and very excited to eventually take a jaunt. And uh, we'll be obviously following along your adventure very closely. And we wish you guys all the success. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Dave. This creative and innovative idea has got us pretty excited about hitting the road and going for a jaunt in a newly converted Land Rover. We'll be sure to try this out sometime in 2020, so do keep an eye out for that experience on our socials. And as always, we'd love to know your thoughts, ideas and feedback, so don't be a stranger. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time.